Cult Movie Cult, where we watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. I'm Mark Dickerson. And I'm Jeremy Fink. And today, we will be discussing 1973's Idaho Transfer. Dan and Lewis are trying to get it together to secretly transfer a lot of young people into the future, bypass the echo crisis or whatever it is, start a new civilization. Daddy can't come, huh? Uh-uh. Something to do with the kidneys. Lewis says it's curtains for anybody much over 20 to try it. Idaho Transfer tells the story of Karen Braden, a teenager who comes to visit her sister at a facility where her father has set up a program where they are practicing time travel. Um, there is some kind of catastrophic event that they're preparing for that could wipe out civilization, and they're trying to figure out a way to send young people to the future uh, to set up a new civilization. Uh, this is a film that was made for, what was our estimate, of, of roughly $150,000, we heard Peter Fonda say. Um, yeah, so originally we weren't, we couldn't find much information about the actual budget, so we figured we put it second to last in the series just because it seemed like that would fit there, uh, which we're still going to do, but I did recently watch an interview with Peter Fonda where he mentions uh, sort of in passing that uh, a friend originally approached him to make a film for $150,000, and that's how this film came about. So we still don't have an actual number for the budget, but so, you know, we're, we figure we're just going to throw it in here we'll and guesstimate. Yeah, we'll guesstimate, and uh, as we're doing for most of these movies, because we don't really have any hard figures. But uh, so, yeah, uh, Jeremy, this um, to to begin with this one, um, Idaho Transfer. It's safe to say this is one of the lesser known films that we've uh, discussed on this podcast. Would you say that? Yeah, I would, and I think it's kind of born out of a time when there was a lot of uh, pretty radical experimental filmmaking going on. Um, I think that, you know, the uh, Fonda, Peter Fonda was really involved with Roger Corman, and then, of course, he made Easy Rider uh, with Dennis Hopper, which was a huge deal at the time. It was kind of that counterculture thing. But moving into the 70s, I think some of that, that 60s counterculture, uh, well, the culture itself, but also the filmmaking was kind of dissipating a little bit as New Hollywood started to come in. Uh, so, so these kind of movies, you know, these experimental films, uh, I think a lot of th these kind of movies got lost. Um, particularly, you know, a lot of the 60s Corman films kind of, they pop up now and then, but they're they're not kind of hailed as the great, you know, masterful films of the era. Uh, but th this was a fun little find. I, I, I had fun watching this one. Yeah, it's a sort of a hidden gem because not many, like, as we said, not many people know of it. But Peter Fonda being such a well-known actor and well-regarded actor particularly for Easy Rider. Uh, I mean, this is kind of... Uh, it's it's interesting that he, he only directed three films. They were all in the 70s. Yeah, it looks like he did a film called The Hired Hand, and then which was a Western, and then he did Idaho Transfer, which is the mm -hmm. film we're talking about today, uh, two years later. And then he did a, another film called Wanda Nevada. So not a particularly prolific directing career. No. Much more of an actor, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, and all three films seem to be pretty different from one another. I think this was the only sci-fi one that he actually made. Um, so uh, it's interesting, to because I think this time period, like you mentioned, Jeremy, there's lots of experimentation going on, lots of, lots of awareness uh, culturally and environmentally, which has a big impact on this film and relates to what's going on today, you know, discussions about global warming and things like that. I, th I thought it was it was very relevant this film, uh, mm -hmm. which is one reason to seek it out. Mm -hmm. And it is called Idaho Transfer, and they certainly use that locale to their advantage. 
So this was filmed in the Craters of the Moon lava fields in Idaho, a big state park there, and they use it very much to their advantage. Um, it's breathtaking, some of the scenery, just to kind of take in and, and you know, in between scenes of... Because this film is very dialogue-heavy, much like Dark Star, um, and the film we're going to talk about after this primer. Uh, very dialogue-based, but it does give you moments to just kind of take in the scenery and just kind of breathe and think about what's going on a little bit, which I, I appreciated. Um, but what did you think about where the this, this film took place? Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was a lot of fun seeing a sci-fi film kind of set in the middle of nowhere. Um, Almost like a desert, yeah. Yeah, it was, it's, it's, it's a really beautiful desert, se- desert setting. Basically, as I mentioned a little bit, they have this kind of weird... The, 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 the way it all works is a little bit confusing, or at least it was to me. Um, because they would time travel, but they would end up in a different location, like 10 miles right. away. Um, which, <laughs> it didn't look too different. <laughs> yeah, which, which they stated it right away. So they, they set their rules up, you know, they, but, but it was a little strange to me because I couldn't quite figure out, you know, how did they get a machine in that one spot, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But but it was kind of interesting because, it A, it was a creative way to deal with a low budget, mm-hmm. uh, which is something we've talked about a lot, is a lot of right. these low budget sci-fi films that we've watched so far uh, they're building sets a lot of the time yeah. to get around that problem, uh, or they're you know they're shooting in like contained locations, and it was kind of fun with this because you know outdoors really has no era linked to it, mm-hmm. so so they really got around that problem uh, in a creative way. Also, there there was one thing which was kind of goofy um, at times, but also another creative way to avoid having to put any high tech equipment in. Uh, is like the the time machine itself was basically just this bench that people would sit on, right. and you would press a few buttons, and to get yeah. to to travel through time, they had to take their pants off for some reason. Yeah, um, I definitely wanted to discuss that because was, it's it was, very unique. Yeah, which is an interesting decision. Once again, this is coming from mm-hmm. the the Roger Corman. Not, I don't believe this was a Roger Corman film. But, you know, some of the same people were involved in those. Mm-hmm. He was kind of mostly known for his exploitation film. So there might have been some of that. Uh, but also yeah. it's just creative because it, it gets rid of the need for them to have to, you know, get in any kind of fancy machine or wear any kind of fancy uniform. Mm-hmm. It, it was another nice way to cut budget. Definitely unique. Uh, much like the setting as well. So as you mentioned, Jeremy, you said that a lot of these films that we're discussing in the series, they use that small budget to their advantage. And mm-hmm. I definitely see that being done here. Um, and it makes sense for the story, too, because uh, the scenery kind of goes along with what the characters are feeling. And they feel isolated. They feel lost and scared. So they're walking through these, you know, these in the middle of nowhere. They're just walking through a desert or around uh, rocks and dirt and stuff like that. So I thought it added to the film overall. Mm-hmm. And also, another factor that the filmmakers used to their advantage was the fact that only younger people under 20 in, in the story of the, of the film can handle the effects of time travel. Mm-hmm. And I thought that plot point was actually very, uh, pretty brilliant because I'm sure they only had access to younger people, most likely, you know, likely people they went to school with or just younger friends of theirs that they knew they were, I'm sure in their early twenties when they made this film. So that was a clever way to kind of get around that, aspect of it yeah i thought um yeah like younger the, actors and yeah it, it did it, it felt like a young film you know it was kind of a kind of a, a fun little romp you know the the discussions it, it, because the, the nice thing one thing i really did like about this film was that you know coming out of this hippie counterculture 
some of the discussions they were having, some of the problems they were facing. You know, it wasn't just the time travel. It was also kind of like, you know, boyfriend-girlfriend-ism and, and that kind of thing, which, you know, is kind of fun to see. And once, once again, a, a, lot of, a lot of these sci-fi films can have a, a self-seriousness to them sometimes, as we kind of discussed last time. Dark Star broke away from that, and I think that this kind of broke away from that a little bit too. It also kind of dealt with you know, issues, I, I mean, I don't know if in the 70s, I read a New Yorker article recently that said that in the 70s, people are starting to talk about climate change a little bit, so it's possible that that was on their radar, but this idea that there's some catastrophic event coming and they have to figure out a way to save the human race by going to a different time period and preparing, mm-hmm. um, you know, is something that could easily be a thing that people are talking about today in a less speculative right. manner. You know, in the New Yorker article I read, there was a whole piece of it of how people have Talked about, you know, oh, can we get to Mars to avoid climate change rather than dealing with the problem at hand? Mm-hmm. Uh, so so I, th- I thought that was interesting, too, you know, this kind of young, uh, progressive philosophy towards sci-fi. It is interesting that some of these sci-fi films nowadays, <laughs> they don't seem as far-fetched. No. Really. Some of them. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, but, going, but going back to what you said about young filmmakers, I, I just realized now that all the films that we've discussed pretty much yeah all the, the filmmakers have been fairly young mm-hmm. um, either right out of college or even still in college when they were probably developing it mm-hmm. um, and that's gonna follow through actually into uh, our last film as well so why do you think do you think there's a reason for that do you think just maybe being young idealistic having these kind of outlandish ideas that you want to see on the screen do you think that adds to that or what, what yeah think? I think it's probably that in combination with a lack of uh, connections, funds, you know, it, it's right. it, it's not unreasonable for a young person to pull together, you know, 50,000, 60,000. It's still a lot of money even today to, you know, someone who isn't in the film industry without, you know, financial backers. But, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where you can just kind of through loans or maxing out credit cards or whatever, I think a young filmmaker can pull together uh, a chunk, enough money to pull off this kind of thing. But why where, do you think they go for these more lofty ideas? Do you think it's just being ambitious at that age? Yeah, maybe ambitious or, or maybe just, you know, sitting down and thinking about, well, sitting down and looking around and saying, you know, what can I do that's kind of fresh and fun and unique? I think as a younger filmmaker myself right now, I see a lot of what's being made around me by my peers, and a lot of it uh, kind of falls into this... Uh, you know, pretty true-to-life, realist uh, set of films uh, or television or web series or anything like that, which which makes a lot of sense because, you know, you're young, uh, you have what's around you, you, ha- you know, you have an apartment you can film in. So the, the idea of doing something sci-fi uh, is not something I, I think a lot of people necessarily pursue. I think I think it's maybe a little scarier. It doesn't. There, there's not a clear connection as to how someone could pull that off. So I think for a lot of these younger directors, if they have an idea that feels like something that could maybe be different than what everyone else is doing, it's exciting. Uh, particularly to you know, you look at some of these names we've mentioned: a John Carpenter, George Lucas, you know, Peter Fonda. These people who, uh, throughout their careers, weren't afraid to go against the grain. Uh, so I think that being able to do something for less money that didn't necessarily feel like it was made for less money, or even if it did, didn't feel like it was the conventional thing to make for less money, was probably exciting for them. I mean, what do you think, Mark? Do you think that that had something to do with it? or? Yeah, I think something about these ideas spoke to them. I think part of it, I think part of it is being young, because mm-hmm. 
you, you tend to have loftier ideas and more, maybe more ambitious ideas uh, when you're younger, I would imagine. So um, I think that's part of it. And also just maybe that's what they grew up liking. And they, you know, when they finally got the chance to make their own film, they were all gung-ho to, <laughs> to just make a, a sci-fi movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why they, they did it. So um, to get back into but more budgetary talk, um, as far as effects go, you mentioned the time travel device mm-hmm. um, and that to me, well, let's, we might as well just talk about it. <laughs> so the time traveling device itself. So you have to take your clothes off and also the way you sit in it, one person kind of straddling behind the other. What did you make of that? Did you find, did, do you think that was intentionally sort of sexual in a way? Did you like, that's kind of the feeling I got from it. Do you think, because a lot of the yeah. the conversations in the film revolve around procreation mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Do you think uh, that had something to do with why they set it up like that? Yeah, I think, well, I, it, it's one of those things that goes back to, I'm not sure if, because this was also a time when, you know, the boundaries of what you could show on screen in terms of sex were kind of being pushed. You know, in, in these days we have HBO, so, you know, nothing sacred. But back then... <laughs> You know, it, it it was a big deal to kind of see some of these young people in a, in an earnest way discussing sex and their sex lives on screen, and and also showing it was kind of a way to sell tickets. So so it is that thing where you know it's hard to be sure if it was a thing that was if it's a, exploitative or yeah if it's an exploitative thing or if it serves a story. Now what I could see um, if, if we're going to theorize and just keep it totally in the story and rid it of context is that. The, you know, the, the man, you know, so basically our main character, we haven't really discussed the main character story. It's a little <laughs> yeah. confusing to explain. It's confusing. We had to uh, look up some things. Yeah, especially there, there's a thing too, to a little bit of a tangent, but they, they don't really, um, bec- they don't really get away from the seventies look here. A lot of films try to be really futuristic, but they don't. So with that, all of the haircuts are very seventies <laughs> and the clothing. Yeah. So at times it can even be a little hard to tell yeah. characters apart. So sure. yeah, would recommend in watching this, maybe keep a notebook or, or something <laughs> like that, or just, or just or pay really close attention. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because, because it can be a little easy to lose track of who is who, but yeah. to get back, um, if we were to pick it apart with context, totally removed, a theory that I would say is maybe that the father who created this whole project or the man who created this maybe made the time travel itself kind of sexual to, you know, maybe, because the goal was for these young kids, well, not young kids, but, you know, these teenagers and young adults to procreate. So maybe he's like, oh, you know, you have to take your clothes off to time travel. It might have just been him trying to <laughs> gently nudge them towards <laughs> procreation. Um, Actually, that's really interesting. I didn't even yeah. think of that. Because, because, because it does explain, it says, oh, you know, like uh, if you're holding metal, it can pull you apart. But there's nothing, never really anything really, that yeah. shows that. At, at one point in the film, she travels with a screwdriver and nothing Mm-hmm. seem to happen so i don't i don't know you know um that's a good uh good theory yeah so yeah. so that it might have been something with that also the fact that and correct me if i'm wrong mark but i don't think the the guy who created this is actually seen at any point am i right about that i don't believe so it? yeah so so there is kind of this weird air of mystery to the whole thing um yeah. you know if we want to get really conspiracy theory driven it could be you know the, these kids are just taking drugs and <laughs> You know, going out in the middle of the desert and (laughs) tripping balls and wandering around aimlessly. Um, But but there are some so so there are some interesting things that I think it's critiquing though. If we if we get past this kind of uh, you know hippie counterculture thing where oh maybe it could be this or maybe it could be that, 
Um, at one point, they as they're in the desert, so basically to, to kind of quickly do a plot summary and, and like with any episode on this podcast, spoilers ahead and spoilers, first, spoilers behind at this point. Um, but basically this girl shows up uh, to, to meet with her sister who is already part of this time travel program. Uh, the sister tr- shows her how to travel. It's all good at first, but then something happens to the sister where she is presumed to be dead. Um, so then our main character kind of becomes this girl who has come to become part of the project. She goes forward. She develops this relationship with this guy. Uh, she starts to think that she's pregnant, which is very good. But then we find out that the time travel actually makes all of these young people sterile. Right. And they're basically just stuck in this future civilization without any hope of actually continuing society. Yeah. But they do find these kind of wandering, um, basically, I don't want to say vegetables because they're able to move around, but pretty much animal, animalistic people who aren't really communicative or anything like that. Uh, so they're trying to see, you know, if maybe those people could reproduce. Um, a theory I had about that, and I know I'm rambling here, but but a theory I had about that is that maybe those people were uh, some of the first ones who did the time travel. Hmm. Um, because because if, if we're presuming that this catastrophic event has already occurred and they're in the future, I can't figure out why necessarily these people would be in this exact spot in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems kind of, and, and how they would have survived if they were so incompetent after that event. So my thought was that maybe they were like kind of test subjects that this yeah. man had sent into the future and they had ma- managed to survive and find ways to eat. But mm-hmm. something about the time travel process had slowly wiped out their ability to communicate and <laughs> act as human beings. That's um, interesting. I don't know. I mean, what did you make of them? Kind of those oh. wandering people. I that's honestly the best uh, theory I, c- I could have for that as well. I, th- I think that's that would make sense um, for what's going on. And you mentioned the scene where the group she's with, uh, Karen, when once she's um, transferred forward in time, uh, when they mention that that's a big plot point there that she cannot have children, and that in fact everyone that has traveled through time is sterile. So. That and I think from that point on, the film gets very bleak mm-hmm. and uh, almost kind of spiraling downward from there. Yeah. And but that's for to me, that's where the film gets the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think more starts to happen. Um, and that's it's probably about the halfway point um, yeah. when, that, when that occurs. And uh, yeah, I, I thought that was very interesting. And I thought kind of following the character after that was a, was an interesting way to present the rest of the story, mm-hmm. kind of in her shoes almost following along with her um and um also to go back to so we, we talked about the time travel device and how we we you know how the the filmmakers got around uh, budgetary <laughs> restrictions uh but one thing I wanted, I wanted to bring up jeremy was the uh something as simple as that flickering or you know the fade in mm, yeah fade in or out effect mm-hmm. that they used uh the filmmakers use when they're transporting or transferring is actually uh, transferring. I thought that yes. was, yeah, I thought that was pretty effective. Actually, I th- something as simple as, as just a flicker, uh, the character flickering in and out. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. So what Mark is cool. what Mark is referring to is when uh, our characters are actually in the process of traveling through time. Uh, when they sit down on this machine, there's this very bizarre kind of flicker dissolve effect as they're kind of being swept or swept up and turned into, you know. Mm-hmm. Atoms or whatever happens when we travel through time. I guess no one really knows. Um, 
But yeah, it, it's I, I agree. I thought that was pretty interesting. I think did did you watch Mark the the new or I shouldn't say new. It was about a year ago at this point. But the return for Twin Peaks. I did. You did because I, if I'm correct, I think that David Lynch used that same effect at I some point in that series. He, yeah, and, and he it definitely didn't, uses effects like that for sure. Yeah, and you know it felt really contemporary. You know, it, it didn't feel like like there's so many cheesy time travel <laughs> effects that we've seen over the years that are really bad with like laser beams and all that, and this one <laughs> kind of felt. I mean, I don't want to say realistic because we don't know what really realistically <laughs> yeah. it would be like, but it, it did feel like. You know, There's maybe that's kind of how it would be, yeah. you know. There's nothing flashy about it. It's just, it, but it's almost more to the point. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, because uh, it has a disjointed feel to it. Yeah, like it's, it's being like, broken um, down. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, like jump cuts in a film of, you know, if you're editing a movie and, well, not to get too much into that, but it kind of has that same feel uh, mm-hmm. where one thing, one you know, an object or a person jumps from one part of the frame to another real quickly, and it looks like they're almost yeah jumping around and stuff like that. So um, I like that jittery feel. I like. I thought um, you know, like I said, it's nothing flashy about it, um, but it works. I, I thought it worked very well in this film. Yeah, I agree. What do you make there? So what do you make of the water bottles? There's this big sequence involving uh, at least I, th- I think they were water bottles it was kind of this metal canteen like object i i couldn't quite place that sequence you may have to refresh my memory on that one there there was there was this this weird sequence where the our main character is kind of walking around and she starts out with one water bottle um but then all of a sudden she kind of like walks around and keeps coming back and more and more water bottles <laughs> seem to be showing up around her okay yeah i do remember this scene i couldn't quite place what that was, I mean, this is one of those things with this maybe movie. Maybe just, maybe just like re- resources, something like that, alluding to that. Um, yeah, well, it's it's one of those things with this movie where I, I, I can't quite be sure if it's really heady and if a lot more is going on or if it just kind of mm-hmm. goes off the rails, um, which maybe is genius, but um, because all these water bottles, search, um, where my mind immediately went to is that, you, because when, anytime you talk about time travel, I think you start to talk about paradoxes, inevitably. Yeah. And that there was this was some kind of paradoxical thing where this girl was just having this journey over and over again, and like bringing a water bottle each time, which would explain her. So another spoiler alert here, but her sister actually isn't dead, um, even though we see her sister die on screen. She's not dead. Um, she's her brain is damaged. Something yeah, ha- something happened. Something happened. But we see her later on, which also I think maybe backs up the theory that, you know, these people are just turning into, these like wandering beasts animal things mm-hmm. um that maybe that's what's happening to your sister but we see her later on but it does seem like there is some kind of weird mistake that's happened here uh mm-hmm. that we as a viewer don't totally ever really get what happens exactly mm-hmm. uh we we just understand that like something has gone awry and our main character is caught in this hellish yeah atmosphere I- I don't know how much we're meant to know. Yeah. Or meant meant to yeah, to meant to know what's going on really. Uh, as far as that goes. I think that's another when you look at these low budget sci-fi films, I think uh, a lot of the plot is probably just kind of getting around things, you know what I mean? Uh it's like maybe not having all the explanations, having more vague explanations maybe. Uh which I'm fine with personally. I I have no problem with that. Um, yeah. So definitely. you do see a lot of that in these types of films for sure. Yeah. So if we're, if we're going to talk about uh, vague explanations, I think we definitely need to hit on the ending here. 
Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Uh, so, so just a little bit of summary. Basically, the film ends with our main character. She somehow ends up near this car that pulls up. Uh, there's a family in this car, and they pick her up, and they then this is a futuristic looking family. It's it's kind of actually the only futuristic looking mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, it is. The, the car and the family, they're wearing like these all gray suits, very 1984. <laughs> um, it's, but, it's it's almost stereotypically. Uh, yeah, like stereotypically, <laughs> like, like you could have seen this in like 1950s sci-fi. But they yeah. pick her up and they put her in the back of this car, um, and they start driving along, and the daughter asks this question. Um, basically she, she's saying like, what happens when we run out and, and she's referring to, uh, the people as fuel as fuel. Much. Yeah. Um, yeah, but she, she asked them, uh, what will happen when we run out of them being people from the past? And, uh, then she asked the question, will we have to use each other? Uh, which is a kind of interesting way to end because it, it ends on a question almost. It on a question, on a, yeah. But it yeah. but it seems like they're using uh, they're they're using our main character as fuel, which is which is kind mm-hmm. of an interesting. And it, it's like like I said, we're kind of following that character, especially through the second half of the film. So I think when that does happen, and you're all of a sudden with this family you've never seen before, I think there is something kind of strong and poignant about that. It's maybe a bit heavy-handed, but. You got to keep in mind these filmmakers were young again, mm-hmm. uh, so um, even if it's a bit on the nose, I think it is a, a very good ending. Yeah. Uh, how do you how, us, how do you interpret you it? it really. Yeah. How um, how would you interpret that? Ending? Well, it's just you know it goes along with the theme of waste or using up our natural resources and what are we going to do once that happens? You know, what, what what's where do we turn next? Um, so I think it's as simple as that, and I think it was just a way to illustrate that, um, and also to kind of take the pull the rug out from under you a bit because it's, it's sort of like a twist not a twist but a little bit yeah <laughs> a little bit of a twist yeah it's it's um and like you said it's the first time you've seen any anyone other than these uh main young people that are kind of just walking around like wandering around the desert and stuff um and these people look um actually futuristic <laughs> and yeah. i guess they're, they're supposed to be more well-to-do or um, yeah. people that have been living in this in this time period for longer, obviously. So, yeah, um, yeah I think it's an, uh, it's an intriguing question. It's something to, to keep you thinking after the, the credits have rolled. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, th- I thought it was worked well. What do you, what'd you think? I think, I mean, now that I'm really thinking about it more, it's pretty grim. Um, I mean, it was oh, grim. It was grim yeah. the first time I watched it, but more, the more I'm thinking about it now is to, to go back to earlier in the film, they're talking about that there's going to be some catastrophic event coming. That's mm-hmm. presumably going to kill all of humanity. What's it called? The echo. Uh, gotta look at it. The ecological event or the ecological. Oh yeah, I thought they had some kind of name for it, but yeah. The ecological anyway. catastrophe. Crisis or something. Yeah, yeah. Something like um, but basically, if we know that this big event is coming, it's going to wipe out civilization. But then, you know, I think it's fifty-six years into the future, we're seeing these people still alive. Then that means that they did something yes. to survive. And, like, and now we know what they did. <laughs> yeah, which which was which was taking up other humans. So I think it kind of gives. It is this, very dark. Yeah, it's very it's dark very because dark. it kind of gives this idea that you know the wealthy people, like if something, mm-hmm. if some catastrophic event were to happen, that basically the way that wealthy people would survive would be by, um, I mean, in this it's literally sacrificing and using them to survive. But you know, if we were to think about a, 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 a catastrophe happening on our planet right now. You know, the people who would 100% be the first ones to go would be the people without money. 
You know, it's, it's the people who, if they live by a body of water and the ocean levels rise, they can't afford to move. They're screwed. You know, so so it is this kind of really... People that live up on the hill, you know, they're, they're yeah, going to be fine. Yeah, people that live on the hill are fine, you know, and, and, and to bring a little bit of current events into it, um, because it is very poignant, actually, as we're talking about I mean, it right how can now. You, how can you not? At yeah. This point, you know? um, so we're talking about this in early December of 2018, and there were just some massive wildfires that swept through California, devastating. and and it's just devastating. Some of the worst. I actually, I think the worst that the country has ever seen. I think it is. Um, in terms of damage, both monetarily and in terms of human life. Um, but one thing that was happening out there was the wealthy, you know, people who were wealthy enough were hiring private firefighters um, to, you know, to fight the fires near their homes so their homes wouldn't go down. Whereas the people who couldn't afford that would just have to abandon their homes and let mm-hmm. them go. So this idea of, you know, the the wealthy kind of cannibalizing the poor or, or yeah. just letting them go to save their, themselves, uh, I think is something that's actually very poignant and that this movie hits on well. But the, the question that the girl asks well, we have to use each other then, raises the more interesting question of, well, if all the wealthy people are left behind, but then there's another event, you know, who gets yeah. to survive then? Is it the super wealthy or is it just mm-hmm. the, you know, the strongest? Is survival of the fittest? Mm-hmm. And that's mostly the victims that you heard about were the more wealthy uh, more wealthy victims. And then, the, you know, like you said, the ones that fall beneath the cracks, you know, mm-hmm. those are the ones that really get it the worst. Not to say that the others didn't have it bad at all, because they obviously did. No, everyone had it bad, but yeah. But, um, you know, I think getting to the point here is that, um, and actually this is probably most the most quintessentially sci-fi concept, I think, that we've talked about so far. Because sci-fi, you know, inherently it deals with uh, questions, you know, and it, it deals with, uh, things that are happening currently, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 it um, brings it to a, a far out world and maybe it takes it into space, wherever. But ultimately, they're talking about the here and now, and I think this movie does that more than any of the other films we watch. I would say, um, particularly even <laughs> even more now in, in 2018 than it was in the 70s. I would yeah. say, um, and it, and the way it ends, I think that was yeah quintessentially sci-fi uh, kind of concept there. And because I think that's what when sci-fi is at its best, that's what it does. It it makes you think about the here and now and yeah. question things and and st- stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I I think that ending is is uh, it stands out, you yeah. know. And I think it's one of the more memorable moments, uh, especially for a film that is so dialogue heavy. It mm-hmm. stands out as as one of the more um, you know, one of the moments that you remember from the yeah. film. And you gotta love the seventies. I mean, because they would just. It's hard to find a movie with a happy ending from the yeah. 70s, which is which is kind of refreshing because it is, it the, is. Uh, other than maybe the 1940s with the noir, mm. it's kind of hard to find an era where That's you true. consistently saw down endings. You know, That's I mean, true. today, you, obviously an independent film, you'll see it, but like most of our Hollywood films that we've gotten for the past, basically since the 70s, maybe there was a little bit of a period in the 90s the where most things... I can think of is that new Marvel or... Uh... The new Avengers movie. Yeah, I'm not giving any spoilers there, but I haven't even yeah, seen it. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, th- you just don't see that done anymore nowadays. Um, to yeah, end on. it's such a, it's such a down note. But but it is interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, it's good. It's good uh, food for thought for sure. And um, the end credits. So I don't, on the version you watch, I don't know if it said this. There was a Latin phrase though. Did you see this? Um, put put in there by by uh, Peter Fonda. Uh, I don't know if I saw that actually. It might have been. At the very end of the credits? Yeah, I don't think it's on all versions of the film. 
this film is public domain, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, just for the just for the listeners out there. If you want to check it out, it is readily available on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Yep. <clears throat> um, and I'm probably gonna bastardize this phrase, but is it Esto Perpetua? Yeah, yeah, right at the end there. Yeah, I see it now. Yeah, I, Est- I don't know Latin either, so I'm not even Est- gonna try. Est- I'm just gonna say Esto. Esto. <laughs> it might be. I don't know. Esto Perpetua. Mm-hmm. Anyway, translated, it means let it be perpetual or it is forever. Mm-hmm. So very appropriate for a film about time travel. Mm-hmm. And oddly enough, it is also the motto of the state of Idaho. Interesting. So a little bit of a double double whammy there. I wonder if it, I wonder if it was consciously. It must have been. I, I assume. Like, like, I mean, like the double meaning? Uh, yeah, I mean, he probably know. thought about it, but I wonder if it was the kind of thing where it was like, oh, they filmed in Idaho and they're trying to give a little oh, yeah. shout out yeah, to yeah. it, or if it's a kind of thing where, because it is it is weirdly fitting, like it would be hard to find a quote mm-hmm. or a quote I wonder if, than that. Yeah, I wonder if he was maybe staring at a license plate or something and mm-hmm. and maybe, because uh, the, the friend he mentioned in that interview who came up to him and, and asked him to make this film, I mean, maybe that, maybe the friend just saw that uh, saying there and just thought, Maybe, should, you know, maybe he got the idea for the film. Who knows? Make a make a sci-fi film in Idaho. I mean, it is really res- it's really resourceful because you know I'm sure some people who are listening to this are, are filmmakers themselves, and that you know that's really I think the way to do it. If if you don't have the budget or the resources behind mm-hmm. you, is like take a take a convention and find a new way to do it for less money. You know, so mm-hmm. they in this they, they took the sci-fi convention, but they said we're gonna set it in the middle of nowhere, and it did. Uh, there were there were some filmmaking things that I didn't personally love. You know, there were some moments that didn't land for me, but it was it was really really exciting to see a sci-fi film just in the middle of nowhere, yeah. kind of aimless. You know, nothing felt high tech; it all felt very lo-fi, but you know, lo-fi sci-fi. Um, but <laughs> there but but there was something just super refreshing and fun and innovative about seeing these characters. Definitely. Strung out in the middle of nowhere like that. Yeah. If you're in the mood for it, it can be uh, mm-hmm. it can be quite quite the trip. Uh, so just to wrap things up a little bit here, uh, Peter Fonda, obviously he went on to be just fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't direct many other films, like we said. I think he only directed three in the 70s. But he's one of the most famous actors out there, one of the famous Fondas. Uh, so he did just fine. Um, the film, though, so the film was released theatrically in 1973. It was for only a limited time, and this was because the distributor at the time, Cinemation, went bankrupt during the first week the film was released. Um, And only in 1988 did the film resurface on video. So that is part of what makes this a cult film is, uh, you know, it it finds life later, later on. It didn't do well when it came out, but now people talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a common thread for a lot of cult films, most of the films that we're going to talk about anyway. Um, so another thing that we usually try to wrap up with is our favorite moments, things that stuck out to us. Um, this being, again, such a conversation-heavy movie, um, was uh, uh, besides the scenery, was there anything else that you thought stood out to you? Uh, in this, from this um, yeah, I mean, obviously the ending I really loved. Uh, then there were just, you know, not, not like a specific moment so much, but just kind of... Uh, the way that they approach nature, that the, they weren't afraid to use these kind of big, lofty, wide shots, I thought that had some production value. I like that the camera kind of hung low for a lot of the movie. Yeah, you got yeah. these nice, like, low-angle shots where it would just frame these characters against the sky. I don't know if that was a product of there maybe being things in the background that they didn't want to photograph and just trying to avoid that, or if it was an aesthetic decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but it did kind of give them, like, these mythic traveler 
this mythic yeah. traveler feeling. Um, and then another scene I really uh, loved aesthetically uh, was just when our main character and the guy who she ends up palling around with uh, are just sitting in this like tent, and they they have these orange candle lights burning, and the whole scene is just washed in orange. Um, oh yeah, and it's just really like like they, they just let it go so far. You know, like like a lot of the time there'd be a little more restraint, I think, in pulling it back and making it look naturalistic. But this yeah. it, it it has this kind of Mars orange look to the whole thing, and then a really nice cut that's a, I think a uh, Lawrence of Arabia shout out. Uh, but she she blows one of the candles out, and then we just cut to this wide yeah. desert. And it's 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 all you know. It's, it's formally it's pretty it. yeah. It's pretty yeah. beautiful. Mm-hmm. As far as moments, uh, I would say the first image. Uh, capturing the snake in the beginning, the very mm-hmm. first shot of the snake. Like you said, the filmmakers and you know the the characters in the film and also the filmmakers did not seem afraid of nature. They seemed to embrace it, which goes along with the theme of the film as well. And that first shot of the snake, where it's close up on the snake and they're trying to ca- they're trying to capture it and bring it back. I think it's it's uh, some sort of metaphor going on there. Uh, and it works well to bring you into this world and sets up the rest of the movie quite nicely. I thought um, so. That's uh, I think that's going to do it for Idaho transfer. Any final thoughts, Jeremy, on this one? No, just check it out. Like we said, public domain. You know, short yep. movie, under an hour and a half. Yep. So if you Our have... next one we're going to talk about, it's even shorter. Yes. And uh, that one is Primer, and it's a length that I like. It's about what is it like seventy three minutes or something? Yeah, like it's that? a quick one. <laughs> yeah, but... it's, it's quick. A quick, but a, a lot going on. But we'll get into that for our final episode in this series. Um, but until then, thanks for listening to Cult Movie Cult. You can find us on iTunes and Podbean, as well as on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any cult films you'd like to hear us discuss on the show, please feel free to reach out to us at cultmoviecult at gmail.com. This has been Cult Movie Cult, and until next time, so long from the other side.